0: Finnegan and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. If Jesus is not the one God overall, then how should we interpret his death and resurrection? How does his death pay for our sins? What does the resurrection tell us about Jesus? Unlike medieval Christianity that taught God the Son united himself to impersonal human nature, the Bible portrays a whole person, a second Adam who died for our sins. When the Almighty raised Jesus from the dead, that marked him out as God's true Messiah. In this episode, we'll also briefly consider Thomas' statement in John 20:28 20, when he calls Jesus, my Lord and my God. Here now is episode 419, part 9 of our One God class, Christ's Crucifixion and Resurrection. Number 9, Christ's Crucifixion and Resurrection. Christ's death and resurrection, of course, are two of the most important events in the New Testament. Of course they are. The New Testament talks about the crucifixion of Jesus a lot and the resurrection. But what do they mean? That's what we're talking about today, not what happened. I think you know what happened. He was crucified, then God raised him from the dead. But what what do these events mean theologically? If there is one God overall and Christ is not that one God, then how did the death of a mere human being pay for everyone's sins? Also, many people believe that resurrection proves that Jesus is God. So we want to be able to consider what does the Bible actually say about Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And to begin with, I want to talk about the property of immortality. So I've got two really important scriptures to look at on this. The first one's in 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, which says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, as I started reading that, you might not have been sure, is this referring to Christ or is it referring to God? Jesus is also called the King of kings. And the Lord of Lords. That doesn't mean Jesus just is God. It just means that they're both kings with other kings underneath them, right? The ancient king of Persia was called the King of Kings. Uh, It doesn't mean that he is claiming to be God. It just means that he had other kings underneath him. Caesar had kings under him in the Roman Empire. Uh, But once we get to the part here where it says, whom no one has ever seen or can see, then we know we're talking about God because lots of people saw Jesus. So this is talking about God, and we have this really interesting word here, the word immortality, and it's the Greek word athanasion, and it means just like the English word. It means not mortal, and uh, just a few little comments on this. The NIGTC says, immortality is intrinsically unique to God. The UBS, United Bible Society's is uh, a translator's commentary. To be, to be immortal is to be beyond the power of death. I like that one. That's pretty good. Beyond the power of death. To live on forever and ever and never experience death. Whew. That's pretty good, too. What else we got here? The Word biblical commentary says, This claims not that God is the only immortal being, But that he alone inherently possesses immortality. He in whom immortality essentially exists and who enjoys it neither derivatively nor by participation. I think the WBC is a little concerned that in other parts of the Bible, it talks about the resurrection and how we will be made incorruptible and how we will be made immortal as well, those who believe in Christ. So they're making a distinction. They're saying, well, God is inherently immortal. And others have a derived immortality, dependent on God sustaining their immortality. Another verse about this is in the same book, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 17 where it says, "To the king of the ages, immortal invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen." Now, once again, it looks like the same word, immortal, but it's actually a different word in this case in the Greek, whereas in 1 Timothy 6:16 6, it said immortality. In First 1 Timothy 1.17, it's actually the word athartos, which means not perishable. Very similar. Okay, I'm not criticizing the translation here. I'm just saying it's, it's a slightly different word. And uh, the NIGTC says it means someone who is not subject to destruction. And therefore, in the most absolute sense of the words, imperishable, incorruptible, and immortal. The uh, Greek dictionary says of this word, uh, athartos, which is translated immortal, it means pertaining to imperviousness, to corruption, and death, imperishable, incorruptible, immortal. And this brings me to the whole topic or or property of aseity. This is really important for us to grasp. This is a little quote from William Lane Craig's book, God Overall. He says, God is a self-existent being. God is not dependent upon any other being for his existence. Rather, he exists independently of everything else. Were everything else magically to disappear, God would still exist. God has the property or attribute of self-existence. This attribute of God is called aseity. The word derives from the Latin a se which means of itself or from itself. God has no beginning. God has no end. God has no dependence on anyone or anything else for him to exist. Now, we know God is very relational, and that God identifies himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So he's very relational, but he doesn't need relationships in order to exist. And that is this radically independent property called aseity. Now, what about Jesus? Does Jesus have aseity as well? Well, I want to give you four reasons why not. Number one, he was begotten. If you're ase, if you exist independent of the universe and anything else or anyone else, you don't need to be begotten. You just already exist. Eternal beings are not begotten. They're just always there. So, for example, Hebrews 1.5, God says, I will be to him a father. Future tense, I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. Number two, throughout his life on earth, Jesus depended on God. He said, I live because of the Father, John 6.57. In heaven, number three, he continues to depend on God. As it says in 2 Corinthians 13.4, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. doesn't say he was made alive. It says he lives. He continues to live because of God's power. And then last of all, number four, he died. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So, no, Jesus does not have aseity. He is dependent on someone else, and he is not... Self existent if he can die. And this is where this death of Christ really comes into the whole conversation of one God overall. How do we understand his death? And uh, what do other Christians think about the same subject? Now, people will typically say something like, God didn't die, but his body died, right? Because they believe Jesus is God and Jesus died on the cross. So, God's body died on the cross. His human body died, but he continued to live. I want to take a stab at this. There are three Christian theories, broadly speaking, of death that people hold. Physicalism, soul sleep, and dualism. Somebody who is a physicalist believes that the body and the soul perish at death. Someone who believes in soul sleep thinks the body perishes, but the soul exists unconsciously. And then a dualist believes the body perishes, but the soul lives on consciously. Let me be very clear here. It does not matter, as far as what I'm talking about right now, which one of these you hold to. Whichever one you hold to, that's what Jesus can't do if he's immortal. So, if you believe that... Let's say you're a dualist. You believe that just the body dying is all that happens and the soul continues to live. Well, then that's what Jesus can't do if he's immortal. You can't kill his body. That's what immortal would mean in that case. Because immortal doesn't uh, have within it a definition of what kind of death we're talking about. It just says any kind of death. That's what mortal means. Let, let me show you this. So the word immortal is, has this prefix, "m," which just means not, just negates. And then mortal. And mortal means to be able to die. So immortal just means not killable or not dieable. It's not really an English word, right? Not able to die. So that's that's what it means. So if somebody dies, they were not immortal. But we know that God is immortal, that that is one of his properties by his very nature. So it doesn't matter whether you're a physicalist, a soul sleep advocate, or a dualist like Plato, and you think that you know, that death is no more than the separation of the soul from the body. That's a quote from Plato, not the Bible. Then that's what he can't do. But then someone will come back and they will say, all right, all right, all right. Christ's human nature died, but his divine nature always continued to live. So they would say, they wouldn't say God died. They would say uh, God experienced a human death. Do you see the subtlety there? And uh, so this actually goes back to an old creed, an old council from the year 451, the creed of Chalcedon, where they, uh, after about a century, a little less than a century, of discussion and argument over how can Jesus be God and human at the same time, they came up with the following definition. And I'm going to read this to you, and uh, I, I realize that this is Very difficult to understand. So don't feel bad if you don't get it. I just want you to hear the words. Because it it illustrates, I think, a point about how complicated you have to get in order to talk about a God-man dying and yet still being alive all at the same time. It's a complicated puzzle. So this is what the Creed says. We then following the Holy Fathers all with one consent teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body consubstantial with us according to the manhood and all things like unto us without sin begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead and in these latter days for us and for our salvation born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. Not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Clear? (laughs) All right, I just want to draw your attention to some of the language here. Like I said, I'm not going to try to explain all this to you. In all honesty, I don't know how much I understand of all of it, although I've I've labored at it some over the years. But uh, one of the things they're really concerned about is this idea of person. They want to say that Christ is one person, not multiple persons. So he says, not divided into two persons, but one and the same son. Okay? So you have these two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. You could see why somebody would say there might be two persons. Because a human nature, a hu- you know, if if, if if you have this spirit being that's gonna come down and unite with this human body, all human bodies we know of have minds, consciousness, call it a soul, whatever you want to call it, like a personhood. And so if you have a spirit person combining with a human body, you would think there would be a divine person and a human person, but this, is, this creed is, is very adamant, and so has the tradition been since those days, that there are not two persons, there's only one person. This is super significant for the topic of the crucifixion, as we'll see in just a moment. Well, this... Creed in 451 did not settle the issue for all time, wouldn't you know? About a century later, in the year 553, there was another council, the Council of Constantinople, the second council of Constantinople. And this is the fourth article. They say, If anyone shall not acknowledge, as the Holy Fathers teach, that the union of God the Word is made with the flesh, animated by a reasonable and living soul, and that such union is made synthetically and hypostatically, And that therefore there is only one person to wit, our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the Holy Trinity, let him be anathema. Then it goes on, For in the mystery of Christ, the synthetical union not only preserves unconfusedly the natures. Some of us are feeling confused. It says you're supposed to be unconfusedly. The natures which are united, but also allows no separation. I find it interesting that a hundred years later, the church is still embroiled in controversy over the dual natures of Christ. Why is it that 553 years after Christ was born, roughly speaking, the church is still not sure how he can be who he is? How he can be both, as they see it, God and man at the same time? And once again, in 553, the issue is you have God the Word, you have God the Word, coming in and, and uniting with flesh or being coming flesh in some sense. And that flesh, they're even, they even say that flesh has a reasonable and living soul. But that soul has no personhood in it. Because otherwise, then you end up with two persons. So, you, so it's more of an impersonal human nature. Wouldn't you like it if some modern person could explain this to you? Well, hey, look. Fred Sanders, on his blog in 2007, just took a stab at it. This is his specialty. He's a Trinitarian specialist. He writes, If the eternal person who is the Son took to himself a perfect and complete human nature, what is the status of that human nature? Yes, tell us, Fred. What is that status? Normally, normally, any instance of human nature that we come into contact with is also a human person. That makes sense, right? Right? Uh, if you run into a human being, you say, oh, that's a person, right? We don't make a distinction there. Well, that was just a human nature. There was no person in there. That Maybe we say that's a robot or something or, or uh, an avatar or some, uh, somebody on drugs. I don't know, but uh, that's, <laughs> that's not normal. But this is, this is an unusual situation. Sanders goes on. He says, is the human nature of Christ, therefore, also a human person? The Christology we are considering gives a twofold answer. On the one hand, the human nature of Jesus Christ is in fact a nature joined to a person and it is therefore personal. To use the Greek term, it is in hypostatic. But the person who personalizes the human nature of Christ is not a created human person like all the other persons personalizing the other human natures we encounter. Rather, it, that is he, is the eternal second person of the Trinity, So the human nature of Christ is personal, but with a personhood from above. Considered in itself, on the other hand, and abstracted from its personalizing by the eternal person of the Son, the human nature of Jesus Christ is simply human nature and is not personal. The human nature of Christ, therefore, is an hypostatic, not personal in itself, and in hypostatic, personalized by union with the eternal person of the Son, Now, this phrase here is worth all the effort we just put into this, okay? We started looking at it from the Creed of 451. We saw that in 553, they were still fussing over it. And that in the year 2007, finally, it's been worked out, right? Uh, But in the description of what happened here, of who is Christ from this Trinitarian point of view, What we're saying is that the human nature of Jesus Christ is simply human nature and not personal. So what we're saying is that the Son, who existed before Jesus was ever born, came down and united with impersonal human nature. And that is what died on the cross. Obviously, God can't die. Everybody knows that, right? So what died on the cross? Impersonal human nature. To me... That sounds like a vehicle, a puppet. It sounds like that movie Avatar where there was a guy piloting an alien body that didn't have its own mind. That's what it sounds like to me. In other words, just take any human being in all of history, that person's life would be more valuable than impersonal human nature, the substance of humanity without any Mind or consciousness or person. So, from our perspective, what we're saying in this class, one God overall, is that Christ is not God come down, but Christ is actually a real human being, and that a real human being really died on the cross. And rather than people saying to us, oh, well, how does that pay for sin since he doesn't have infinite value because he's not God? We can come back and say, you don't believe God died. Come on, let's be honest. You think God, I mean, at best, you think God experienced a human death by having his impersonal human nature die. I mean, it's like somebody's robot dies. Big deal. It's not valuable at all. So what in the world is the value Of impersonal human nature. I looked this up on Amazon. I found a nice human skin you can buy. It covers your whole head for $233. Is that that, that what we're talking about here? You can get a nice silicone mask, realistic Western male face, full headwear. There you go. Surely that's not what we're talking about. Who is the Jesus of Scripture? Is it a silicone Jesus? piloted by an infinite God who's hiding? Or is it a real man? The kind of person you can eat with. The kind of person who shook and sweat and cried out in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew he was about to die. That's a real human being. He said, I'm thirsty. And he died on the cross, a real man, not a puppet, but then we ask the question, well, why does, why does his death count? Why, why, why does God value it such that it covers everyone's sins? There, there's a very common way of thinking about this today where uh, people will say, well, if Jesus is not God, then he can't die for everyone's sins. Okay? And that line of reasoning, is, if you trace it back through history, is only about 1,000 years old. You know, Christianity is 2,000 years old, so you ask yourself, why did it take Christianity 1,000 years to arrive at this understanding that everyone just kind of thinks is intuitive and obvious today? Well, it wasn't intuitive, and it wasn't obvious if it took 10 centuries, right? Stuff that's intuitive and obvious, like people in the first century just are able to understand. So what happened is about, uh, let's see, 1033, uh, a man named Anselm was born, And uh, he wrote a book and kind of worked out this whole theory based on medieval honor status kind of system. So the way it works is if two peasants insult each other, the fine is very low. But if you insult a landowner, you are punished more harshly. And if you insult the king, you'll put to death. Now, it's interesting because in their world, this is not the way our world works, by the way. Thank God. But... Uh, Or it's not supposed to work. (laughs) Uh, But let's say that that in this case, a peasant did the same crime to all three. The peasant to to another peasant, insulted. The peasant to a landowner, insulted. And a peasant to the king. Same insult to all three. The the punishment is different in Anselm's world world because from a medieval perspective, it's more There's more value on the king or the landowner than there is on the peasant, so you get punished more harshly just to keep everybody in line, I suppose. I don't know. What about God? Even the smallest sin is an offense against God, and God is infinitely higher than any king on earth. Therefore, every sin against God has an infinite punishment attached to it. And so only someone of infinite value can atone for all those infinite sins. Ergo, God had to become a human being and die on the cross for our sins. This is all St. Anselm. This is, think about it. Where's that in the Bible? Show me the chapter and the verse. Is that how the Bible talks about it? No, it's not. If you, if you read the Bible carefully, and I, I, I tell you, I have read every single verse on the subject of atonement, on, on how Jesus died for our sins. I've looked at all of them. All of them. It doesn't say this anywhere. In there. This is what it says. This is how the Bible talks. Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's, what it, that's how it talks about it. One trespass, one act of righteousness. Let's go on. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinner, so... By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. There is no sense of like, well, this one man is more valuable than other. It's just very simple. You have Adam. Adam wasn't a, a mysteriously valuable because he was divine in some sense. Nobody talks about Adam as having dual natures or a hypostatic union, right? So, but yet he's so powerful he could he could doom the human race. Wow, that's incredible. And yet, here's Jesus comes along, and Jesus is just like a new Adam, the beginning of a new human race, and he is able to obey, and and therefore, he's able to balance the equation, if you want to talk about it in those terms. If you look at the Old Testament, the pattern is not equivalency. Think about the Passover for a moment. In Egypt, you had a family, let's say 10 people, And all they would need to save their lives was the sacrifice of one little lamb. One roasted lamb. That's it. And that would cover 10 people. How is one lamb worth 10 people? That's the normal pattern. The normal pattern God uses is to pick something that is not of equal value so that he can also forgive. If God always exacts complete justice at every time that anybody sins, then he never forgives. So uh, on the Day of Atonement, right, there's a sacrifice of an animal for the sins of the priest. Nobody thinks that animal is equal in value to the priest. And then how are the sins of the whole nation dealt with? How are they atoned for? How is is an entire year's worth of sins taken away? They put it on a goat and send it out to the wilderness. They don't even kill it. (laughs) They call it the scapegoat. That's the normal pattern we see in the Bible, is that God doesn't insist on exact equivalence in order to make sure that everything's just and perfectly even. Because you know why? He's merciful. He's gracious. He's forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It says in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty one: For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So it's clear. You have a man that messed everything up. You have a man that made it all right. And if you're going to be in Adam, then you have a world of problem, right? Right? Death is your inheritance. But if you're in Christ, you can be made alive. So what does Christ have to be? Does he have to be divine? No, he has to be a man. He has to be human. According to the scripture, he has to be a real human being. And not just impersonal human nature. Not just just part of a human being. A whole human being. And in the end, you know what makes a sacrifice effective? God accepts it. That's what makes it effective. Effective. Simple as that. If you, if you uh, kill 100 people to atone for your sins, is God going to accept that? No. <laughs> no, God doesn't want you to go kill other people, right? That's ridiculous. But like, if you were thinking about it in a very calculated way, you'd be like, well, I, I should be able to sin a lot now because I just killed 100 people for God. That's psychotic. Don't do that. God accepts the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of humanity, and that's what makes it work. Simple as that. So if you'd like to go deeper into this particular topic on Anselm, this is a nice little picture of Anselm here. I recommend this talk that Jerry did, Jerry Weirwell, Did Jesus Have to Be God to Pay for Our Sins? It goes into a lot more detail. And I also wrote a whole paper on it, if you'd prefer a written source. I go into lots of depth and cover all those verses in the whole New Testament that talk about it. So I wrote a paper, Why Did Jesus Die?, and if you want to find that online, you just type in, Why Did Jesus Die?, and my last name, Finnegan, and it'll pop up. On to resurrection. How does the New Testament interpret the resurrection of Christ? I don't have much time left to cover resurrection. I knew that was going to happen, but I I did want to at least cover it briefly in 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 a short manner. Uh, It says in Romans 1 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection declares Jesus Christ to be the son of God. It declares that he is the son of God. Now we've already seen that son of God is interchangeable with Messiah, son of God is interchangeable with king. Acts 17, verse 31, repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. What? You're going to judge the whole world by a mere man? Yeah. Yeah, he is. That's what he said he's going to do. Whom he has appointed. How do we know who the man is? And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So this is how the Bible talks about resurrection. It's not the only way, but this is the the main way, is that the resurrection marks Jesus out as the ultimate Messiah, judge, one that God is going to send to establish his kingdom. Uh, Now, resurrection also has other meanings. It also foreshadows our own resurrection, as it says in Philippians 3.21. It provides our justification according to Romans 4.25, and it exemplifies walking in newness of life, as we see in Romans 6.4. But none of these say resurrection proves that Jesus is divine, or Jesus is deity, or Jesus is God. That's that's actually one of the things that's missing from the New Testament, except for maybe one verse. John 20.28. Let's take a look at it. Then he said to Thomas, This is Jesus in his resurrected body. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So what is going on here? It's pretty clear, right? Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. What's not clear is what does he mean, me and my Lord, is not controversial. But what does he mean by my God? And uh, as far as I can tell, there are six theories, six ways of thinking about the phrase, my God, when Thomas says it to Jesus. So uh, I'm just going to mention these to you and I'll tell you which one I, I think is the best and we'll take it from there. So Thomas is recognizing, let's see, number one, that Jesus is a God, lowercase g, by virtue of his superhuman status. If you think about the scene a little bit, Thomas and the disciples are are sitting around in a room and Jesus suddenly appears in the midst of the room. Normal human beings can't do that. Jesus is alive after he was dead. Normal human beings can't do that. Jesus lives in heaven. (laughs) Normal human beings can't do that. So Jesus is, in his resurrected body, in his superhuman status. And uh, so as Paul calls Satan the god of this age, Thomas could be calling Jesus here the god of the age to come. Lowercase g, God. But understanding that there's still only one who is ultimately God, and that would be the Father. And this is what we've kind of seen with angels, too, being called Elohim or gods in the Old Testament. The understanding is that they're superhumans. They're, they're of a higher level of life than regular people are, but they're not in competition with Yahweh, the one true God, capital G. So that's, that's one option. Number two uh, is that Thomas, maybe he was trying to say that Jesus just is the Father, uh, and this, this, I think, is unlikely because in John 5.30, Jesus had said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That makes me think there are two wills, the will of the Father and then the will of the Son. And if Jesus just is the Father, he's contradicting himself. I can't say I seek not my own will, but my own will. Right? That's a contradiction. Uh, And we have that language pretty typically in here. Uh, Number three, Jesus is the same God as the Father, but not the same person. This is uh, the idea known as the Trinity, right? He's the same God, but not the same person. This is all this language of person. Person, actually, did you know that the word person as, as a concept distinct from being? Because before the Trinity idea, to talk about a human being just was a person. You know, like there was, nobody made any distinctions there. They actually invented the word person in order to define the Trinity. The, the, the idea only goes back to the fourth century when the Trinity was being worked out. And, and that, that makes me really suspect that Thomas had this in mind, this kind of understanding. Because like, how would he even have this like, really philosophically complex concept in mind as a first century Jew who followed Jesus, never having gone to some fancy school or lived outside the land of Israel? How would he have that way of thinking? Uh, so I think I doubt that that is really the best way to look at it, that he's thinking of person as distinct from essence. Number four is that when Thomas called Jesus my God, he's saying that Jesus, not Caesar, is the man properly called Lord and God. This idea comes to us from Suetonius in the lives of the 12 Caesars. He talks about Domitian, who was an emperor in the ta- in the, towards the end of the first century, and he opened his letters by saying, Our Lord and God. He called himself Lord and God, and he insisted that other people call him Lord and God. So it it could be challenging that, that Jesus is the true Lord and God, not uh, Caesar. I I don't really find that one super convincing, but it is another theory that people have put forward. Uh, Number five, Jesus is God's agent who can be called God because he represents God. This goes back to the idea from Psalm 45. We saw that there was a court poet there who called the king, the Israelite king, God. He said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and so on. And so the idea is that this poet in Psalm 45 was calling the king God because he was so impressed with the king's strength in battle. And, you know, he talked about his sword on his thigh and his arrows and, you know, all his, like, battle skills. And then he says, your throne, O God. You know, so if... A court poet in ancient Israel could call a king God because he's so awesome in battle. How much more can Thomas call Jesus God if Jesus has just been victorious over death and sin and the grave? A much greater battle than whatever this Israelite king had done. Uh, So that's another idea is that he's recognizing Jesus as this agent of God, this representative of God. And then lastly, number six, uh, Jesus is my Lord and the Father in him. Is my God, and uh, this is the idea that I lean towards. I, I go back and forth, you know. I mean, I don't know everything, you know. I try to figure things out and weigh them against each other, and I change my mind over time. I used to be, you know, in different places here, but these days I'm leaning towards number six, the idea that um, Thomas is now uh, recognizing a truth that he was missing earlier on. So let me explain this ever so briefly, and then we'll review. Reasons why my God is the God in Jesus, not referring to Jesus. Uh, well, number one, this is a major theme in the Gospel of John. Seeing the Son is seeing the Father, as we see in John one eighteen, ten six, twelve forty five, fourteen nine, sixteen twenty five, sixteen twenty nine. 10.6, 12.45, 14.9, 16.25, 16.29. So, you know, if this is a major theme in the Gospel, to have it have it sort of like play out in the climax of the Gospel makes a lot of sense. Uh, number two In their last conversation, this this is the one that really catches my attention. Jesus had told Thomas, if you had known me. So this is the last conversation they had before Jesus was arrested, crucified, risen. So this is literally the last time Thomas saw him. Jesus had told Thomas, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus said to Thomas, You have seen the Father. At which point Philip asked the question, Lord, show us the Father. And then Jesus said, Have I been so long with you? Have I been? Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus says, have I been so long with you? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. This was their last conversation. So these are the words that are rattling around in their heads when they see Jesus again. You know how it is. You haven't seen somebody in a while, and you see him again. You think of the last time you were together. And there was a lot of confusion, I imagine, during that last supper when they were together, a lot of head-scratching and sort of like pondering, like, what is he saying? What do you think he's saying? You know, sometimes listening to Jesus... Uh, I'm sure it must have been challenging for the disciples. And uh, Thomas is finally getting it now that Jesus is raised from the dead. Seeing Jesus is seeing God. That's what Jesus had been saying. That's, that's what the word made flesh is all about. In John 1.14, all the way throughout, I do not do my own de- will. I, I, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I don't speak my own words. I don't do the own deed. Everything in the Gospel of John is like lining us all the way up so that we would recognize that when we see Jesus, we are seeing God because God is in him. In fact, Jesus in John 2.19 said, uh, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The temple is talking about his body. Jesus believed he was a temple. What does that mean? It means that God was dwelling in him. Thomas has finally recognized this, my Lord and my God. Jeff Dybel writes, Trinitarians claim Thomas saw God the Son in Jesus, but Jesus said it was God the Father who was in him. This is a serious misidentification, as it ignores and contradicts the consistent teaching of John's gospel that the Father is the one who is both at work in Jesus and revealed in Jesus. Let's review. God. Number one, God has the properties of aseity, immortality, and imperishability. Two, Jesus depended on God during his time on earth and still depends on him even now in heaven. Three, Jesus died, thus he is not immortal. Claiming that only impersonal human nature died cheapens our Lord's sacrifice. Five, what makes Christ's death for our sins effective is that God accepts it, not any intrinsic value calculus. Six, Christ's resurrection proves he is God's Messiah, not God himself. And seven, when Thomas said, my Lord and my God, he probably referred to the Father who dwelt within Jesus. Next time we're going to continue looking at Jesus, we looked at the crucifixion and resurrection just now. We need to look at his ascension and his heavenly role at God's right hand as a priest as we continue through our class, one God over all. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What'd you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 419, Christ's Crucifixion and Resurrection, and leave your questions and feedback there. As we enter into the holiday season here, just wanted to remind you that you can give to Restitudio if you uh, have been blessed by this ministry. Uh, you can do that at Uh We are a 501c3 registered nonprofit, and uh, we certainly do appreciate those who have supported us uh, throughout the year. So uh, if you feel moved to do that, uh, we would just so appreciate it. It really helps to cover our costs. And it helps to spread the word a little bit so that we can reach others with this message of restoring authentic Christianity and really digging beneath the layers of tradition to the biblical documents themselves to uncover them and understand them in their own context rather than overlaid with later tradition. So you can do that at our website, as I mentioned, restitutios, like the word restitution with no n dot Well, friends, we'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.